who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, hi, everyone. I hope that you all had a good week. I am very much looking forward to my weekend because I have another wedding to go to. I love weddings so much. I love the fact that none of my friends have traditional Catholic weddings or religious weddings because they are so fucking long. Most of the ceremonies that I've been to lately have lasted under 10 minutes, and that is perfect. We do not need the ceremony to go on forever. I take that back. Actually, quite a few weddings that I've been to in the past few years have gone longer than that, but you know, I just love a cool wedding, and my friends are just getting married at this bar downtown, and it's going to go from like 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. I'm like, that is so fucking cool. So I'm very pumped for this weekend. I also want to apologize for this episode getting up just a little bit late. I feel like I am a broken record saying that. But with the Patreon episode and my schedule this week, it just got a little bit crazy. And I wasn't able to finish this episode last night, so I finished it this morning. And now here I am. I also wanted to let you all know that there will be one more Notorious Bitches episode because I still wanted to cover all four of the women that I had in mind, even though I did have to release an old episode one week. And I'm very, very much looking forward to releasing that episode for all of you. I think it's a very fascinating person. And I also wanted to let all of you know that there is a new Patreon episode up, which is covering the second half of the book Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. Spoiler alert, I loved this book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. As a person who has consumed a lot of true crime content and has been very fascinated by many of the different true crime topics since I was far too young, this book was like made for me. I really, really enjoyed it. There was a lot of 
thought provoking things that came up as I was reading the book. And that's really what I went into with these episodes, not so much the content of the books, but more the different thoughts and feelings that I had surrounding some of the topics that were discussed in the book. So if that's something that you're at all interested in, you can just go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist. There's also a link in the show notes. I also just want to give you all a heads up of a really amazing episode that is coming up on Still Learning. India and I interviewed a journalist by the name of Alice Hines recently, and she is one of the main characters, I guess you could say, in the documentary series on Amazon Prime called Desperately Seeking Soulmate, which goes into the Twin Flames online cult, and it's so fascinating. It was so much fun talking to Alice. It was a really, really wonderful conversation. I'm working on that episode right now, and it's going to be up next week. I'm so excited for that one to be out in the world, especially because it is so topical and this docuseries was just released. So if any of you watched that docuseries or have any interest in watching it, I highly recommend it. And then go ahead and listen to that interview next Friday on Still Learning with Alice. It's going to be awesome. All right. I think that's all the super important things that I need to get to here. Unfortunately, everything that I'm discussing today is fairly heavy, so I do apologize. I'm going to do my best to add as much levity as possible whenever I can. But the first thing that I wanted to discuss on this episode was that on Saturday, October 28th, the actor Matthew Perry passed away after allegedly drowning in his jacuzzi at his residence. The medical examiner has updated the online record since the initial report, stating that the cause of death was deferred. And this is what is usually written when additional studies are needed to determine more in-depth information. The medical examiners are waiting particularly on the results of the toxicology report, as it is well known that Matthew had a long history of struggling with substance abuse disorder. Now, I'm sure everyone and their mother is telling you about how much the TV show Friends meant to them and how Chandler was their favorite character, and I'm just going to be another one of those because I discovered the show Friends when I was 12 years old on a trip to Sun Valley, my very first one actually, and my skating friends that I didn't know very well at the time, I kind of met them on this trip, we were on the plane and they had a portable DVD player and a bunch of the DVD seasons of Friends. And so we just watched that series over and over and over again on the trip. And once that was over, I told my mom, I'm like, I need friends on DVD. So every birthday, Christmas, holiday of any kind for years, my mom would go on eBay and purchase a season of friends on DVD for me. And I would get that as a gift until I had all 10 seasons. And I literally would just rewatch this show over and over and over again, probably from the age of 12 until 24. My friend Josh and I in high school would even have competitions as to who could recite an episode the longest without messing up. We were super, super competitive about it. We were on it with our quotes. And Chandler was always a character that really resonated with me because not so much with the humor, but I really felt connected to him in a lot of ways. I've never considered myself to being a funny person. But Chandler is self-deprecating and is kind of a loser at times and not in a mean way, but just, you know, he's got the short end of the stick quite a bit. He's a little bit neurotic and goofy, but I always saw him as being the most genuine of the male characters. And when he and Monica got together, I was just so excited. I remember telling my skating coach when she met her now husband that I wanted her to find her Chandler. (laughs) 
I'm so cheesy. But anyway, that is my experience with the show Friends. It Again, I feel like I'm just repeating what everyone else has said, but because it was such a comfort show, it really did help me through a lot. It was a show that I could rely on, the consistency of it, knowing exactly what was going to happen, the lighthearted humor. It wasn't going to deal with anything super serious, although I always skipped the episode where Ross and Rachel are breaking up because that's just too much for me. And I was always very aware that the actor Matthew Perry struggled with drug abuse because it was very obvious if you watched the show and if you were an avid fan of Friends because his weight fluctuated a lot and he was very, very open about his struggles with substance abuse disorder for a really, really long time, even when he was on Friends. So when I heard about his death, the first thing that I thought of was a potential overdose. And I feel like as an adult man, it would be pretty difficult to drown in your jacuzzi if there wasn't some sort of drugs involved. So I think that's why they're making that clarification in the media that we do need to wait for the toxicology reports and such to be able to give us a fuller picture of what happened to him. His parents, John Bennett and Suzanne Morrison, as well as his stepfather, Dateline's Keith Morrison, a fact that always fascinated me, were seen arriving at Matthew's residence on Saturday night amid the police response. I, I just cannot imagine the anguish that his family is going through. I cannot imagine what it would feel like for a parent to lose their child, mainly because I'm not a parent, but... I always hear whenever this happens that you just don't expect it to go that way. You expect to go before your children, not the other way around. In November 2022, Matthew came out with his memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, where he opened up about his battle with addiction. In it, he said his addiction issues began when he was just 14 years old. In 2018, he was hospitalized and nearly passed away after his colon burst from opioid use, He spent two weeks in a coma and used a colostomy bag for nine months. The opioid epidemic in this country is truly so disgusting, and the lack of resources and help for people to recover from this addiction to opioids is so infuriating to me, especially with its prevalence. Matthew once said on a podcast recently, The best thing about me, bar one, is that if somebody comes to me and says, I can't stop drinking, can you help me? I can say yes and follow up and do it. He said he wanted to be remembered as somebody who lived well, loved well, was a seeker, and that the most important thing to him was helping others. In 2011, he lobbied the U.S. Congress as a celebrity spokesperson for the National Association of Drug Court Professionals in support of funding drug courts, which aims for the treatment court model and criminal justice reform worldwide. He also opened the Perry House in 2013 out of his former mansion in Malibu. Two days after his death, his friends' co-stars released a joint statement saying, We are all so utterly devastated by the loss of Matthew. We were more than just castmates, we were family. There is so much to say, but right now we're going to take a moment to grieve and process this unfathomable loss. In time we will say more, and as when we are able. For now, our thoughts and love are with Maddie's family, his friends, and everyone who loved him around the world. As I was getting to earlier, the prevalence of drug use in this country is vast. 
Some use of drugs can be healthy and healing, such as therapeutic psychedelics that are assisted by a doctor, so on and so forth. But in many cases, it can lead to addiction and death. 25.4% of all American drug users have a drug disorder, and 24.7% of them have an opioid disorder in particular. Over 70,000 drug overdose deaths occur in the U.S. annually, and this number has increased at an annual rate of 4%. Addiction is a vicious disease. Many people are not able to get clean, and many never even walk through the door of an AA meeting to get any help. We don't know how Matthew Perry died, but we do know that his legacy is his compassion toward others experiencing substance abuse disorder and his desire to help end the prevalence of the disease. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a hotline, so if you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, please feel free to call 1-800-662-4357 to be able to find treatment near you. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. I want to give a trigger warning before I go into this next section because I will be discussing mass shootings and suicide. If you are experiencing thoughts of suicide, help is available. You can call or text the number 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, available 24 hours a day for support. Next, I wanted to give an update from last week's story regarding the horrific mass shootings that occurred in Maine on October 25th. The killer was found on October 27th, deceased, near his former place of work. His cause of death was, of course, apparently a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Adam Lankford, a criminal justice professor at the University of Alabama and author of The Myth of Martyrdom, 
what really drives suicide bombers, rampage shooters, and other self-destructive killers, says it's about self-loathing and perceived injustice, and location matters. According to an article where this person was speaking with Wired.com, it goes on to say, According to my findings, the shooter's likelihood of committing suicide or suicide by cop appears to be 1.16 times higher for each additional victim that is killed. This suggests that those who have the most rage toward others, therefore killing the most victims, would also feel the most guilty and ashamed about their crimes. They are therefore more likely to engage in self-punishment via suicide or suicide by cop. I think this is an interesting take because it is displays some sort of compassion for the killer that they would somehow feel some sort of guilt but I don't know if I personally buy this I talk about this more in the most recent episode on Patreon covering Savage Appetites the chapter where it's discussing Lindsay Savannah who was a alt-right young woman who planned a mass shooting with a man that she fell in love with online in Halifax Canada Thankfully, the plot was discovered before they were able to go through with it. But in that chapter, it really discusses a lot about her mindset and what led up to the shooting. And I just have this feeling that these killers are so narcissistic that ending their own life is not due to their guilt of killing innocent people. I truly think that it's a way of protecting themselves from having any sort of repercussion for what they've done. And they know what they've done is wrong. And I also think that there's this idea of martyrdom where they feel like they're doing this as some sort of political statement or religious statement or statement about society in general of some sort. And I think that by killing themselves, they think that that makes a larger statement to the world. It also seems to me that a lot of these people are really looking for notoriety and that they're lacking a lot of self-identity. And so maybe they think that in killing themselves, they're making themselves more notorious in the end. I'm not sure. The same article says that hopelessness is one of the most common reasons why people seek death and that their killings are a mean of control. And that's exactly what I think is the basis to all of this. I also read that shooters who attack in open commercial locations are particularly more likely to end up ending their own lives. From the Wired article, Shooters who struck in sites such as shopping malls, department stores, and restaurants were 4.19 times more likely to die as a result of their attacks. And now none of this is meant to be seen as compassion for this killer or for fascination or for any voyeuristic reason. But I'm consistently fascinated by these events because I want to understand them as a means to hopefully help prevent them. It makes me so angry when offenders take their own lives because we are unable to get any sort of justice for the victim's families and because it robs us of the information of what led the offenders to do what they did. So hopefully we can understand this horrible phenomenon a little bit better. If you suspect someone in your life to be planning some sort of mass shooting, please contact your local Crime Stoppers. The victims from the attacks' names and information have now also been released, so I want to take some time for you all to get to know them a bit. There were a few different events going on, including a youth bowling league practice and a cornhole tournament with members of the deaf community. William Brackett, who went by Billy, was a 48-year-old deaf man who was also an avid athlete. His dad said of his son, 
He was just a gentle person. He was big and rugged, and I guess maybe that's why all the little kids loved him. They swarmed to a bigger person. Maybe they thought, he'll be our protector. Bill Young and his 14-year-old son Aaron were playing in a youth bowling league at the bowling alley that the shooter targeted. Bill is said to have been a very dedicated family man, and Aaron was an avid bowler who had received recognition from the youth league. Peyton Brewer Ross is described online as a dedicated pipe fitter, which I love. Everyone needs a passion. I just didn't know people could feel so passionately about pipe fitting. I love that for Peyton. He was playing cornhole and hanging out with his friends when he was killed. He and his fiance had just celebrated the second birthday of their daughter two weeks prior. Joshua Seal was an ASL interpreter, and he was one of the other people playing cornhole in the tournament. His wife described him as a wonderful husband, an incredible interpreter, and a loving son, brother, uncle, and grandson. Bob Violet and his wife Lucille were at the youth bowling tournament where Bob was the volunteer coach. Lucille worked for Lewiston Public Schools and bowled in a women's league as well as a couples league with Bob. She was lovingly referred to as the youth league mom. Best friends Michael Delorier's, I'm sorry if I'm saying your last name wrong, Michael, I'm doing my best, and Jason Walker's were at Just In Time Recreation, and it has been reported that they made sure their wives and several other young children were undercover, then they charged the shooter. Michael and Jackson had been best friends since kindergarten, and Michael's sister Vicky said that she wasn't surprised that they lost their lives together, protecting others. Joe Walker worked as the bar manager at Shemengi's Bar and Grill and was greeting people that night at a trick-or-treat event hosted by an organization he leads. Trisha Asselin worked part-time at Just-in-Time Recreation, but she had the night off and decided to come in anyway to go bowling with her sister. Trisha was one of the people to call 911 when she realized shots had been fired. Arthur Strout was playing pool with his dad at the bar. His son had asked him if they could stay longer so he could play a few more games. It seems his son's life was spared. Brian McFarlane was also a deaf man who was playing in the cornhole tournament that night. He grew up in Maine but spent a lot of time in Vermont, and it was there that he became one of the first deaf people in the state to get a commercial truck driver's license. His favorite companion on the road was his dog, Eminem, named after his favorite candy. Stephen Vozella was another deaf man and worked as a U.S. Postal Service worker and was also a member of the New England Deaf Cornhole Group. I feel like I have to move to Maine because these people love cornhole as much as I do. Thomas Conrad was the general manager of the bowling alley and really enjoyed working in a place with so many young kids. He had served tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Max Hathaway was a stay-at-home dad to two daughters with a third on the way. His wife had just left the bowling alley a little before the shooting since the kids were getting fussy. Keith McNear was visiting his son for his birthday. He was waiting for his son at the bar when the shooting began. Ronald Moran was described as having an infectious personality. He worked as a sales merchandiser for Coca-Cola in the Northeast and was an avid ice and floor hockey player and loved softball and cornhole as well. My heart goes out to everyone who was affected by this shooting, and I only hope that with the little bits of information that we can acquire from this tragedy, we can hopefully work toward preventing some of these shootings in the future. Okay, that is all that I have for you today. I'm sorry that I don't have a palate cleanser or something more exciting, but I do have my dog Dorothy staring at me on the bed, so maybe she wants to say something.
Okay, Dorothy, what do you want to say to my listeners? She's a little bit shy, but she's looking very, very cute. You want to do the ending with me? Okay, good. We're going to do it together. If you're interested in getting more feminist content, you can go over to Patreon at patreon.com. There you can join the book club at the $5 level or you can become a feminist fave at the $8 level where you will receive all of the book club content. You'll get these episodes ad-free and some other goodies as well. Don't forget to check out the latest episodes covering the book Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe in the book club. And just another loving reminder, if you love the show and you think others would too, please go over to your Apple Podcasts app and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. You can also rate the show on Spotify. And if you really enjoy the show and you think a friend would, go ahead and send an episode to them. Thank you, as always, for all of your love and support. That's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye! Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Mm-mm. Not she. They, maybe? W- wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often?